0: Welcome to the New Books Network.
1: Hello, everyone, and welcome back to New Books in Medicine, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. I'm Rachel Pagonis, and I'm your host for this episode. Today I'm speaking with Victor Roy about his new book, Capitalizing a Cure, How Finance Controls the Price and Value of Medicines, published by the University of California Press last month, January 2023. Victor Roy is a family physician and sociologist whose research focuses on the political, political economy of access to treatment and care. He is currently a postdoctoral fellow in the National Clinician Scholars Program at Yale University. He earned his MD from Northwestern University as a Paul and Daisy Soros New American Fellow and his PhD in sociology from the University of Cambridge as a Gates Cambridge scholar. And I have no idea how he managed to get all that done so quickly, but he did. And Victor, welcome to the show.
0: Thanks so much for having me.
1: Well, it's great to have you here. I think this is a subject that is going to be interesting to a great many people, including anyone who has used drugs or may use drugs in the future. So to begin, would you tell us a bit about your own background? What made you decide to study both medicine and sociology?
0: Yeah, so that combination really stems from, I have to go all the way back to, to the beginning. You know, my parents are from um, villages about four hours west of Calcutta in India, and my maternal grandfather it, was a family physician in those villages um, for his entire life. And so I grew up in the U.S., but we would spend our summers um, and many t- many times throughout my childhood uh, with uh, my grandparents, and I'd watch him take care of patients, um, go out and do home visits. And so I always thought that the combination of kind of science and humanism that he exemplified in caring for people was a model and came to understand medicine through that example. Uh, but I think through the course of my childhood and then definitely entering into college, also saw how the structural drivers of health were, were really um, what shaped people's experience in terms of whether they had access to treatment or care, um, the kinds of opportunities that they had to achieve uh, health in their lives. Um, Definitely geography was part of it, depending on where you lived in the world or even within a particular area. And so I got more and more interested in the social sciences. um, And at that time, uh, many of... uh, uh, my peers as well had encountered Paul Farmer, the physician anthropologist, um, and through his work really came to understand how the social and structural determinants and drivers of health um, create inequalities um, in, in, in his work through understanding um, access to uh, treatment for tuberculosis and HIV AIDS, um, and really, you know, drew me to studying sociology I studied political science in undergrad and then kind of decided to, to pursue sociology in, as part of my doctoral studies. Um, I think the other piece that I would say that sociology really kind of um, gave me the tools to think with was ultimately something that's often absent from discussions in health policy or public health, um, at least in, in conventional kind of uh circles where it's just the the question of power. um, The way that power shapes all the systems that people encounter um, was really, in my mind, important to interrogate. And that's part of why I decided to to study sociology.
1: What a fascinating background. And so did you do the medical degree first and then sociology?
0: Yeah. So in the US, um, usually you do, if you're going to do an MD-PhD, you do the PhD oftentimes in the middle of your medical training. So you do, you know, but the first part of your clinical learning, uh, mostly book work, and then you do your PhD and you go back to the wards. And so it's basically how I did it. Um, I just self-styled my own MD-PhD because typically PhDs are, you know, lab scientists. They work, um, you know, uh, in in more of the biomedical sciences. And so I kind of fashioned an MD-PhD in the social sciences by being able to do the PhD over in the UK.
1: Yeah. Well, I'm sure it will inform your, or is informing your practice as a physician, too.
0: Yeah, absolutely. I mean, you see it every day, you know, trying to understand, you know, the the ways that patients show up in your clinic or in your hospital is shaped by a lot of things that are happening outside of the clinic or the hospital. Um, and then the ways in which the healthcare system itself um, can be therapeutic, but also at times... Um, reproduce a lot of the problems that exist outside of the hospital and the clinic are all things that I, I think about when, when I'm caring for my patients and trying to figure out, you know, what we could be doing better for them, both in that encounter at the individual level, but through my scholarship and, um, and research um, and, and linking with others, thinking about how we can change these systems as well. Mm.
1: Yeah, so tell us about the book. What prompted you to write this book about the financial side of pharmaceuticals?
0: You know, we'll, we'll, we'll get into the specific case. I think, you know, when I started off with this research, I had no idea I'd be going, you know, towards studying corporate finance or Wall Street. But I think I realized quickly, sometimes research takes you in directions that you didn't expect. And that's kind of um, what makes it fascinating and interesting Um, And in sociology and and definitely in studies of kind of the economy or what some sociologists will call political economy, one of the key methods is just to follow the money. (laughs) And when you follow the money, you realize, okay, there's this other system here uh, that's not just a business or government or a health system, but a financial system that is shaping the way all of these interactions happen, and uh, and I needed to wrap my head around that and be able to interrogate that. And, and in that way, I realized that actually a lot of these discussions around finance and the way the financial sector was shaping health and health care were kind of absent from the health policy discussions and the public health discussions, um, and that I had an opportunity with this research to kind of bring that analysis in and hopefully create space to have new you know, frames, arguments, uh, for a way forward.
1: Well, so the book is about drug pricing and you use the hepatitis C drug sofosbuvir, which is marketed by the ph- pharmaceutical giant Gilead as a case study. And in the book, you write that Gilead's price ap- pricing approach triggered a crisis in treatment access and a contentious public debate over the value of new breakthroughs landing the company on the front pages of the news media. So before we get to the pricing approach and the debate, I'm wondering why did this drug at this time cause an outcry and why did you choose sofosbuvir as your focus?
0: Yeah, so we can start with some basics. You know, sofosbuvir is a treatment for infectious disease, hepatitis C. And at the time, in 2013, 2014, at the time these drugs launch, you know, hepatitis C is a, is a viral infection that affects large numbers of people all around the world, so about 70 million people, according to the WHO, um, and high, middle, and low-income countries. And so imagine you know, you've got a condition here that's an infectious disease that's transmitted through the blood, often through injecting drug use, um, so it affects structurally kind of marginalized populations in many places. Um, And for decades, for, you know, for these patients, we didn't have great treatment options. And the treatments often required a weekly injectable treatment called interferon. And the treatments would last for, you know, a year, often like chemotherapy, very toxic, without necessarily high cure rates. And so in that context when you have a large patient population you know that could benefit um, you have now this curative treatment that brings a lot of hope with it it's showing in the clinical trials 90 95 you know upwards of really close to 100% curates in certain populations uh, that created that ho- that that hope you know was was met with a lot of contention and You know, real political struggle because the price that Gilead set at the time was, you know, north in the US of $90,000 for a three month treatment. And so it got dubbed the $1,000 a day pill because you take the medicine daily. Um, And and what happened is that when you multiply a large potential patient population with that price point, uh, you end up with a large financial and fiscal kind of. struggle and and controversy because this is uh, a decision that then health systems were forced to make is who do we treat? How do we, you know, quote unquote, contain the costs that are involved? Um, And that led to rationing in a lot of um, countries, um, even with lower price points. um, and, And of course, in the US as well, um, and we can get into kind of the, what happened globally, um, but that that was kind of the the major um, you know uh, features of this controversy. You have a treatment that can affect uh, imp- uh, improve the lives of a lot of people. You've got a high price point. You've got health systems trying to figure out how do we make this available to patients, and so. You know, it led to a U.S. Senate investigation looking particularly Gilead's pricing strategy, you know, in certain at the World AIDS Conference uh, in 2014, there was a major protest against the company. Um, the company did ultimately license the treatment to, to low income countries, um, but a lot of middle income countries were left out of that. And so uh, that agreement. And so there was a lots of places and settings around the world that had to really figure out how do we. How do we make this treatment available? Hmm.
1: And did you choose it because at, at that time, as you were uh, working on your PhD, this drug was in the news? Were there other drugs you might have chosen?
0: Yeah. So I think that you know, part part of it was that it was very current at that at that point, um, and I think a really a, a real big part of it was just that there was a, a significant opportunity to learn because there was so much. Public, um, so much of a public spotlight placed on this case. There's just a lot more information, right, available to a researcher like myself. Um, So, for example, in 2015, the U.S. Senate uh, publishes a report, and also as part of the report, they put out 1,500 pages of corporate documents um, that you just don't see with as many other cases. And so, I definitely had other cases in mind, but this was in particular kind of an opportunity to learn because there was so much um, information coming out about kind of the process and the steps involved um, in making the drug and the pricing of the drug. Uh, But I think the other key piece that I found really interesting, puzzling, kind of troubling was part of the argument here was because it's a curative treatment. You know, a lot of folks, not even just the drug companies, here we're arguing that well then this is you know part of part of how we value health is you know we should we should pay up um, because it's a curative treatment and we'll you know we can we'll get into that that framing that you know better treatments uh, deserve you know higher prices that we're willing to pay for as a society uh, I I thought that was a really uh, um, important frame that even doctors were echoing, and so this was different because it was a curative treatment uh, than, you know, let's say other treatments that were out there at the time to study.
1: So I'd like to start with some definitions, because you're looking at drug pricing from angles that we may not all be familiar with. You know, we're not all familiar with finance, particularly people listening to this medicine um, channel. So would you explain what you mean by the terms financialization and also capitalization and assets as they relate to the pharmaceutical industry.
0: Yeah, absolutely. So we can take each one. You know, financialization is a um, is a term that has emerged in the sociology and some of the economic literature, and what it really is uh, describing is the rising power of uh, the financial sector and financial logics in in our society. And the literature I'm most interested in looking at in the book is kind of the description of how that happens in the last quarter, in particular, of the 20th century, where you you see the rise of uh, banks um, and uh, other financial actors on Wall Street, uh, like hedge funds, private equity, uh, and that these financial actors they start actually uh, accounting for a much larger share of overall profits across the economy so they become a much bigger part of our economy when you just look at profits even though actually they employ very few people in comparison to let's say the service sector or manufacturing and what that was connected to was this idea that you know the stock market and share prices are really the way to look at, you know, what is valuable in the economy because these define uh, basically a a company's performance and their potential for future growth. And if you can uh, organize your company around kind of delivering higher share prices and then delivering more of what you earn to the stock market through shareholders, then that will, you know, be the best for the economy at large, um, and so that really then does a second thing, which you know, in addition to like the financial sector becoming a much larger part of the economy, it affects how businesses operate. Businesses like pharmaceutical companies, which we see start becoming less organized around actual production, for example, taking long-term risks on in, uh, on research and development, but more. Uh, more organized around how do you speculate on assets uh, in in the economy to be able to deliver quick returns, and so this whole phenomenon of quarterly capitalism, right, where you are trying to get returns in a short time frame, uh, it becomes kind of the common corporate practice. Uh, so that's what financialization is describing. It's kind of describing the way in which the financial sector rises and the way that affects uh, business strategy we'll get into kind of this, we can get into the specifics of how that works in, in this case of pharmaceuticals and with The second idea, capitalization, you know, I use that, uh, uh, this term, mostly just to describe uh, a, a business strategy that all businesses use, which is how do businesses value potential investments or potential ways of using their money? Um, and part of what, I describe here is that it's a very future-oriented quantitative process. Right, they're trying to understand how much money will I be able to make in the future by allocating my capital or money in this way. And part of the idea here is that you'd hope you, as a business, you're trying to understand and identify how you can make more money in one direction versus another uh, by making a particular decision. And so capitalization is something that, you know, businesses uh, uh, do in terms of, you know, it's, it's, a, it's a very much part of the, the strategies of any kind of organization, business organization. But part of what I argue is that actually looking at that practice tells us a lot about power, right? Because they're trying to anticipate the future. And by looking at how companies are anticipating the future, uh, tells us a lot about how they think Power relationships are what they can kind of exploit to their advantage to be able to generate the most money in the future. Uh, and the final piece assets you know, part of what part of the, the key piece here um, is that for companies you know, in this financialized economy where they're trying to make decisions of, over their capital and how to use it um, and generate those returns in the time frame that Wall Street wants. You know, is is really what it's all about? Is it's about owning assets, uh, and assets in this case are not you know even treatments that already are out in the market that are making sales and, and revenues. It's about owning intellectual property um, that is deemed to be valuable by the stock market, and uh, the reason that they're valuable is that they could have a potential future earning stream, um, and so being able to own and control intellectual property is really critical because that gives these financial actors and definitely the businesses that own this intellectual property uh, a claim over any potential future earnings stream. And that's what creates the underlying kind of value uh, that then folks on Wall Street, for example, like traders can then trade on and speculate on and be able to generate returns in periods that are far shorter than it takes to, for example, develop a treatment. Um, and so, in this case, like one of the key assets is the patents over beer um, and how that kind of travels through the R and D process. Um, and so, assets are important to understand because it's you know again all about the ownership and control over that future earnings stream uh, from which you know the owner was able to be able to accrue value.
1: Okay, so let's get a bit into what the drug companies are doing um, in practice. There's a common rationale given by drug companies to justify their high prices, which is that they have sunk huge sums into a risky venture and they need to be compensated in order to continue developing new and potentially life-saving drugs. How does your research give the lie to that claim and, and what does drive drug
0: prices? Yeah, so, you know, I think we can start with the kind of, I think, uh, claims that have existed for for a while, which is that, you know, prices correlate to what you just described, these risky sums that are spent uh, and large sums that are spent on uh, research and development. You know, in that framework, part of the argument here is that companies get, you know, um, intellectual property protections over medicines which means that they have, you know, to put it simply, monopoly rights over a given treatment so that they don't have to compete with other companies and they can charge a higher price because there is an absence of competition. The idea here is that, well, companies will then be able to recoup uh, and and make a profit on top of what they spend on research and development. Now, this this kind of argument, you know, had lots of holes in it, but kind of Uh, could hold together in an environment where one firm kind of makes the long-term investments, the research and development uh, investments over a long period of time, and and does the 10-year, 15-year kind of process to bring a treatment from, you know, science all the way to patients. But part of what I describe is that that actually isn't how it works. Um, What what really drives um, the entire process now is you have a bunch of different financial actors that uh, are involved. Uh, Venture capitalists, for example, you've got the stock market, you get, you have the big pharmaceutical companies at the end of the process um, who all have kind of a financial stake in this process. And no one actor here is actually doing the, you know, research and development costs and investments over the whole period of time. And part of how they're able to generate um, their their earnings, their um, revenues, is basically by trading on the value of the ownership and control of what I just described, their potential assets, which is intellectual property, and that's all connected to this idea that one day health systems in the future will pay more for a better treatment and if that premise can hold you know steady then that drives a whole circulation of capital <laughs> and and so the pricing becomes less connected to how much it costs to make something the pricing becomes entirely connected to how much does you know wall street expect that health systems will one day be willing to pay for this treatment and that is based on the price of your existing standard of treatment standard standard of care so for like the hep c drugs at the time the treatments already cost north of seventy thousand dollars and you know those prices increased from the thirty thousand dollar range you know maybe about a decade before and this over time You know, each price builds on the next price because that's kind of the expectation that drives the entire circulation of capital in the process. So part of my argument is that, you know, drug prices are really connected to how financial markets operate and look at and value intellectual property. And and just the last bit I'll add here is that, you know, companies, when they then make these, you know, significant earnings on a successful treatment they're not actually spending that money back on research and development in their own business. For example, Gilead made over you know forty five billion dollars on these treatments in the first three years, and most of that money goes right back into the stock market by either paying dividends to shareholders or actually just buying their own stocks. And so that was something like over thirty billion dollars went for that purpose. Uh, which pales in comparison to what they spent on research and development in that same period. And so that disconnect of what what happens kind of uh, crystallizes this whole concept, which is that prices are all about what the stock market demands and don't really have as much of a a connection to that actual research and development and that uh, labor involved in making something.
1: So, I think you've, you've kind of touched on this with the, the share buybacks and the existing drug prices. But I, I was struck by a quote you used from the sociologist Jens Beckert. And he says capitalist competition is essentially a battle to establish and alter expectations. So, what are some of the ways that the pharmaceutical companies involved in bringing Sofosbuvir to market established and altered expectations?
0: So, you know, I think I looked at it in two different ways in this case. I think that there's the kind of more overt way that companies that I think we're all familiar with uh, try and shape expectations about the future. And that is through direct um, political lobbying, which is that by being able to make sure, especially in the in the U.S. system, that if the pharmaceutical industry can maintain in particular in the US, kind of a a market where they have pretty unfettered pricing power, that that will then allow them to kind of imagine that future in a way that can generate uh, large valuations on intellectual property that would incentivize them to, for example, in Gilead's case, bet $11 billion to buy the sofasavir uh, uh, intellectual property that was already in phase two trials from another company, in this case, Pharmacet. And so part of part of this is by actually making sure that, that legislation that would potentially create more pressure on actually having to negotiate drug prices and um, other kinds of uh, policy moves that might threaten pricing power are kind of curbed or uh, that they don't come about but I think that the other piece that's really kind of interesting in terms of how to think about the how, co- how companies have have been shaping or trying to trying to kind of uh, alter our understanding um, and definitely the, the expectations of of policymakers is by kind of coming up and, uh, and framing this argument around value and so part of the argument here, that we can, I can get into further, is that we have to actually come up with a, a conception where it's also about a, a conception of value, which is also about trying to save society money in the future by paying upfront costs for a treatment, let's say in this case, a curative treatment for hepatitis C. And that kind of shaping of that future expectation of, well, if we can buy this now, you can save money in the future, that also was part of uh, shaping the way that entire policy debates were playing out. Uh, And part of what I argue is that that is less of an overt kind of political lobbying, that that's actually something that they work more with academia, health policy experts, um, and other kind of actors, even patient groups to uh, make it uh, more reasonable and even commonsensical for us to kind of view uh, prices in a particular way. So I think there's the overt ways, but the, there's other ways that other strategies that are used to kind of shape expectations about drug pricing. Mm.
1: So are those groups, academia and, and patient advocate groups, et cetera, are they being sort of hoodwinked?
0: I think that there, you know, I think it's a complicated uh, answer in that there, there is a part of it that uh, the way the current system is set up, right? If you don't challenge any of the underlying premises of the current system, then they're able to... Um, you know, it, 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 it makes sense for the, those groups to say, well, I want my treatment, like for example, for hepatitis C patients, or you can take any particular patient group to say, I want health systems to pay for the value of this treatment and not to restrict access. And in, in a way that kind of plays into the industry strategy because it places pressure uh, the accountability not on pharmaceutical companies to lower prices, or even government officials to lower prices, uh, but for 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 health systems to pay up. Um, and so, I think in in a way, you know, there there's a bigger conversation about is this the way we want to be designing the whole system? Where actually everybody's debating about you know what is the upward bound of what human life is worth, um, and That's kind of how the entire uh, process here is kind of now organized, Um, and I think that's part of what I'm trying to challenge, you know, in terms of, you know, is is this the best way to be able to do things? Families have a lot going on.
1: Yeah. That value in human life, um, we'll get back to that in a little bit. I want to ask, you mentioned Pharmacet, (laughs) and that was um, the company that preceded Gilead in developing savospavir, and was then bought by Gilead. And Pharmacet, you write, was a company founded to land the lucrative rewards of being bought by another company. So that rather audaciously capitalistic model, you explain, was enabled to a large extent by publicly funded research. Now, would you explain what made that possible and how it works?
0: Yes, yeah, so, you know, set, like you said, the company very much in its name was designed to be a company that produces assets uh, for big pharma. Right. That's kind of how Ray Shinazi, who was the founder of the company, uh, came up with the name and how did that come to be even as kind of a conception of, of how, uh, a business like the one he founded, uh, operates. So, you know, in this case, you've got a publicly funded lab, um, in Atlanta through the VA, uh, through Emory. Um, and it's a familiar story in terms of long-term public funding that goes into research, uh, that underlies ultimately underlies the sofosbuvir treatment, uh, but the idea, you know, of, of spinning this out into a venture-backed private f- companies that hold intellectual property uh, that have its origins in public funding, you know, that really came about and accelerated in the nineteen eighties and nineties after the passage of a law known as the Bayh-Dole Act. The idea at the time was that you know, there was a lot of public funding, of publicly funded research that was sitting, you know, at least the idea goes on the shelf. And this act basically promoted the, the uh, use of publicly funded research for uh, commercial purposes. And so universities set up offices called technology transfer offices, where literally technology knowledge that was produced uh, could be transferred and licensed and, and used to help create startups. And so that's what Pharmacet was. Um, and so that has a rationale behind it, right? Which is that it can lead to more businesses. It can lead to economic activity, new technologies. Uh, but of course, in the area of, you know, public health, medicine, you know, biomedicine, there's that tension where if the products ultimately are commercialized in such a way that, downstream they're priced out of reach. Well, there's a question here if government funding was a critical part of making this all possible. Um, and was one of the key actors involved, you know, what are the, the responsibilities of the public sector to make sure that this then gets used in the public interest for public health goals. And so that's part of the, the controversy, the challenge that, uh, was at stake here in the hepatitis c case uh you know pharmacet not only comes out of emory and the veterans affairs which is a publicly funded system health system in the us you know the us government later on ends up funding uh, uh pharmacet directly through grants uh, and all of this was underpinned by publicly funded research uh that created some of the technologies involved, that even allowed companies like Pharmacet to test whether their compounds worked against hepatitis C. Um, And so definitely there's a lot of public investment involved uh, in any R&D process, research and development process uh, for new treatments. Um, Of course, there are, as I show in the book, private capital is very much part of this picture as well. But oftentimes the private capital... Is attracted because of the public investment coming in first and creating the possibilities and the potential for new technologies in the first place, um, and so that is part of uh, the, the 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 contract between the public and the private. That you know, I try and shine a light on and and you know challenge and ask ask the question of whether we've got the balance right here.
1: Yeah, and then did the government not have any capacity to? claim any of that, any profits that accrued from mm-hmm. drugs so, that they had, yeah. Yeah, so this
0: into. is, I think this is, you know, a big area of, uh, you know, uh, interrogation and kind of uh, dialogue uh, where, you know, for the NIH doesn't really, they don't take, for example, a stake on, uh, in a company, typically, uh, and we just saw this with COVID vaccines, the U.S. government spent a lot of money, uh, especially with Moderna, actually financing the clinical trials, but did not take out any stake, ownership stake in the company. And so, you know, the way we've set it up right now is just, well, the benefit that society, you know, the governments get is that people will get healthy by uh, and that this will produce economic activity. But there's no direct kind of return on that investment. Uh that is uh, part of the process typically. You know, I will say in the case of Sofosivir, the, 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 the compound itself was developed, you know, some years into Pharmacet's uh, life course as a company. And so, it, you know, it wasn't at the time that the company, you know, it wasn't out of a publicly funded lab directly out of which Sofosivir came, but one can definitely see all the connections to public funding that were critical to making all of this happen.
1: And, and didn't the government also sort of write itself out of the, the right to negotiate lower drug prices?
0: So in the U.S., that has definitely been the case. Um, since 2004, when the U.S. Medicare program uh, uh, d- had excluded a provision so that or included a provision, I should say, that did not allow the government to negotiate with, with drug companies um, with, within the Medicare program. You know, health systems in Europe, for example, do negotiate with, with drug companies over drug prices. Uh, the important thing to note is that just as of this year, as of, because of new legislation that was passed in August, the gov- U.S. government will start negotiating over uh, a select number of drugs uh, starting in 2025, um, and that will, you know, be a big policy experiment to see how that works in this country and whether that uh, does address at least part of the problem that I describe in the book.
1: Okay, well, fingers crossed. Um, so you mentioned Gilead's price over ninety thousand. So it was actually ninety four thousand five hundred for a three month course of Sofosbuvir, I believe. And in Chapter Three, you describe the term valuation which is essentially how Gilead set a value for human health on a population level. And I was dismayed to find that among other things, the company hired a healthcare consulting group called IMS to sort of gauge the upper limits of what they could charge. And IMS's research included preparing a so-called heat map of pushback that Gilead might get from patient activist groups or Congress in response to different price points that they might set. And they wanted to see how far they could go really without getting too much flack. So my question to you is how has this sort of cynical tactic come to be represented as a reasonable way to value human health?
0: Yes. So, you know, I think value ends up being a big part of, uh um, what i try and unpack in the book you know and 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 what you just described here is ultimately value at least the way it's defined and, and conceived of um in this scenario is it's all about what is society willing to pay for health and and really for a revenue maximizing business it's all about testing the upper limits of what society is willing to pay the price uh is, you know, connected to that basic calculation. And, and we see that played out by, it, you know, through the tactics that, that you just described that I document in chapter three. It, you know, just to go back to the earlier question, you know, here's where we see it very clearly it has nothing to do with kind of the division of labor in the innovation process, you know, what it costs to do to, to actually, you know, Uh, to actually make a new treatment. Um, And I think this is really challenging in that, uh, you know, when you have health, you know, typically for patients, for health systems, there's what is thought about in economics as kind of an inelastic demand, right? If you're sick, uh, you know, it it really, you as, definitely as an individual, you're going to pay quite a bit But even as, you know, as a health system, you're going to want to pay quite a bit to be able to secure health for somebody in your, in your, in your jurisdiction, um, or as an individual, if you were the one paying, you'd, you'd pay quite a bit because health is so basic and fundamental, right? And so that's kind of the moral crisis at the heart of all of this, which is that if, if you have something like health, um, that is so valuable to people, um, And then you have drug companies saying that actually we've got treatments that are really highly effective. And, you know, as a society, since you value health so much, you should be willing to pay this much, right? Um, And, of course, this whole construction uh, doesn't work on a very pragmatic level in that health systems have to figure out what they're spending their money on. Um, And and so this leads to the whole, you know, sets of controversies that cascade throughout throughout the book, but in particular in chapter three. Now, how this becomes kind of a commonsensical way uh, to look at this is simply the fact that, you know, we as uh, uh, as a as a society, uh, as health systems, we should be, you know, willing to pay more for a better treatment. It's kind of the basic, you know basic conception and and pay more for better treatment over a worse one and that's if if we don't do that then that whole circulation of capital that i described doesn't happen and we don't get better treatment and that becomes something that for example like doctors will end up actually adopting that logic right so you'll go to conferences and you'll hear you know this construction well you know The cancer doctors, they're able to treat their patients with drugs that are well over $100,000, and they only extend life by like a year, maybe six months. I've got this treatment over here. It also costs $100,000, but it's curing patient of the disease, right? Um, And so shouldn't my treatment, since it delivers this value, be rewarded and the, you know, shouldn't health systems pay up so that my patients can get access? So then you've kind of brought, it's a very powerful frame and makes the whole idea of high prices for better treatments kind of very commonsensical. It's something that gets adopted and taken up in the health policy debates. Hmm.
1: Well, I think at one point in the book, you mentioned how much cost society can bear, which Sounds like you know how much society can bear or the payers can bear without collapsing. And it seems like when it comes to healthcare in America, that the healthcare systems are always in danger of collapsing, or you know, people aren't able to access the drugs that they need because their insurer won't pay for it because it's too expensive, or Medicare can't afford to pay it. So I mean, it's it just seems like the drug companies are, are pushing those limits, you know. If you go beyond what people can bear, what society can bear, haven't haven't you missed the point somewhere about improving health?
0: And part of my part of what I would say to that is, you know, I think that the health, you know, government policy actually allows this to persist. Right? There are steps that policymakers can take, but we're kind of in a system in which this is how pharmaceutical companies are structurally kind of incentivized to pursue this strategy because going back to what I described earlier is, you know, wall street is expecting a certain percentage of growth year in and year out. Right. And part of, for a company coming to the market with a new treatment, it's about, well, can we deliver that growth? And, and that is, you know, that whole construction is something that there are specific, very specific policies that I trace that kind of allow, allow it to, to persist in that way.
1: So it does seem like as a society, we are valuing financial growth more than we are valuing human health.
0: I think ultimately, that's the, those are the connections that I, you know, draw together, yeah. which is that, you know, when we're talking about value, we think we're talking about health. But actually, what we're talking about, you know, is only partially that, that it's a lot of the conversation is totally connected, even sometimes unwittingly, to, you know, how much value can we maximize for shareholders, you know, and that's just showing up as a health policy discussion uh, in a way that uh, allows this to kind of continue.
1: Yeah, yeah. Well, you are not content with the status quo going forward. And in chapter four, you propose what you call a public option model. And you say this would position the government to take a full cycle approach to developing drugs, including financing those very expensive clinical trials, and ensure they are sold at a price closer to their manufacturing cost. I'm wondering how possible do you think this scenario is and what would it take us to get there?
0: It'd be a transformative change, to be sure. Um, I do think that it's it's possible in that, you know, because the public sector, you know, particularly in the US, is so involved at, at multiple stages along the research and development process that, you know, and we just you know we saw this with the COVID vaccines as well, that what it would take is you know, for the government to actually take a more proactive approach to those final steps around clinical trials and, and uh, those late-stage clinical trials, some of which the government funds, you know, already, um, and and manufacturing, and those are of course major big steps. But you know, the government does this in other sectors where they're able to, you know, work with uh, private actors and other public organizations. Uh, We see this in the defense sector um, to kind of bring technologies all the way from the initial steps to to market. And while I I don't think this would replace the private pharmaceutical industry, having this as an option creates a kind of alternative model that I think would uh, compete and and place kind of, um, you know, kind of direct the entire system more towards public health than what we've got right now. And we see experiments that are underway in places like California where they're trying to do this with insulin. The state there is trying to take on and figure out how can we manufacture insulin because the prices in the US have really put it out of reach and made it unaffordable for a lot of people. Uh, In the Biden administration, they've just launched this new agency called the Advanced Research Projects Agency for Health. And this is part of kind of the US uh, you know, the, at the federal level, where they're they're going to take on high risk projects, but it would be really interesting to see whether some of these projects that they take on for health, they not only take on those early stages in the middle range of the, you know in terms of the process, but take it all the way through. Um, and I think the the benefit here would be for you know a lot in in, in a lot of different you know health areas, uh, we might be able to see a situation where. If the government's able to take that on, the prices are actually much more connected to the cost of manufacturing the treatment um, rather than prices that are connected to, you know, Wall Street and those expectations. And it would be, you know, overall would save society a lot of money, actually, and also be able to deliver on health uh, for people.
1: And those manufacturing costs are hugely lower, aren't they?
0: You know, it depends on the kinds of treatments, but, uh, you know, for what we call small molecule compa- molecule compounds, like, you know, sofosivir, you know, these are treatments that cost about $100 to manufacture, right? That that the prices are in the tens of thousands up to, you know, in the, you know the list price in the U.S. is upwards north of $90,000. Um, and so you can just imagine how much, you know, the, the percentage cut that is just pure profit here.
1: Yeah, yeah. And you would imagine there are... Could be much better public health that way as many more of these drugs are available to many more people. And particularly, as you say, the more marginalized populations that may be more subject to getting diseases like hep C.
0: Absolutely. I think in all of this, we just have to really recenter what this is all about. You know, is this about health and public health and, you know, really being able to use the fruits of biomedicine to deliver on that? Or is this all about, you know, how do we kind of accumulate and extract as much value for for Wall Street? And I think this, this book tries to, you know, use this one case to look at how all of this unfolds and the kind of choices we have to make um, to be able to choose one direction over another. Uh, in the future.
1: Well, you've given me hope here, Victor, and I'm glad you did because after reading the book, you know, some of it was kind of cynical, <laughs> not, not you, not the book, but what goes on. So um, I'm glad that you really described some hopeful, hopefully events. Uh, I want to remind everyone, the book is called Capitalizing a Cure, How Finance Controls the Price and Value of Medicines. Uh, it's really an eye opener. Great to read. And Victor, thank you so much for speaking with us today. It's been fascinating.
0: Thanks so much, Rachel. It was great to be on. And the book is available open access. So I'll, you know, encourage folks to check it out, even if you don't want to pay for the paperback.
1: Fantastic.